0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewall's Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, as always, Carrie Parker. And uh, wouldn't it be nice if privacy wasn't an afterthought? What if user privacy was built in from the get-go? What if the entire design assumed that you didn't want anyone selling your data and then actually respected those wishes? Well, that is the world of privacy by design. Uh, which is a concept pioneered in the mid-1990s by Dr. Anne Kavukian, and somebody I've wanted to have on this show for a long time, and today is the day. I've been teasing this for a while, and uh, the moment has finally come, and I could not be happier. So while this may seem like an unattainable utopian future, Anne's infectious optimism may just convince you otherwise. And adding privacy doesn't mean sacrificing security or functionality if done properly. And we're going to discuss all those concepts, all built into Anne's Privacy by Design, which has been translated in 40 different languages. It's it's one of the primary pillars of the general data protection regulation of the GDPR uh, in the EU. But it's also been very influential in, uh, in other places as well, including the, the CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act, which we talked about very recently, and influential in so many other places. So one more thing before we get into the interview, I've got I found out a very interesting other little uh, fact about uh, Dr. Ann Kavukian uh, that you'll find very interesting something that kind of blew me away and uh, I'll but I'll tease that and we'll we'll talk about it after the interview. So uh, with that in mind, let's get to our interview with Dr. Ann Kavukian. Dr. Ann Kavukian is recognized as one of the world's leading privacy experts. She served in an unprecedented three terms as the Information and Privacy Commissioner of Ontario, Canada. And while there, she created a privacy framework that is now used literally around the globe, one that we will be discussing today. And I've been wanting to have you on the show for a long time now. So I'm really glad we got it (laughs) done. Thank you. Welcome.
1: Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: Okay. So as it turns out, I just got my very first privacy certification. I got my CIPM, or Certified Information Privacy Uh Manager. And, uh, of course, part of the required knowledge for that was privacy by design, which is a concept that uh, you pioneered in the mid-1990s. So uh, let's <laughs> let's start there. Tell us tell us what is privacy by design and maybe how the concept has evolved since it was first conceived.
1: Well, let me tell you how it arose. Uh, my background, I'm a psychologist. I'm not a lawyer. I study psychology and the law, but I took a very different approach to the whole area of privacy. So when I was appointed commissioner, I had... You know, a gazillion lawyers reporting to me, and it was all about regulatory compliance, which is after the fact. Once um, there's a privacy harm, you call the commissioner, we investigate, and we issue an order, we do something, we offer some system of redress, which is very valuable. But I wanted a different approach. I wanted a model of prevention. I wanted to prevent the privacy harms from arising to begin with. So I wanted a proactive approach. I called it privacy by design, which is all about embedding much needed privacy protective measures into the design of your operations, your policies, bake it into the code so that you can avoid the privacy harms and the data breaches. It was a very different approach, and it took a while for the lawyers to (laughs) warm up to it, if you will. But then it took off.
0: Yeah. And so uh, if you don't mind, it has seven foundational principles and I want to kind of rattle them off and then we'll talk about a few of them. Uh, So number one, proactive, not reactive, which you just talked about. Preventative, not remedial. Uh, Then privacy as the default setting and privacy embedded into the design. Full functionality, positive sum, not zero sum. End to end security, uh, visibility and transparency and respect for the user privacy. So uh let's talk yes. about the the privacy by default and privacy embedded by design yes. That seem to kind of go together so in practical terms i mean we talked to, you kind of gave an overview but what does that really mean and like maybe give us some examples to kind of bring that home
1: privacy as the default setting is probably the most important one of the most important of the principles because what it says to customers or citizens it says look you don't have to ask for privacy we give it to you automatically By default, it's the default setting. Instead of expecting you, which is what the norm is, expecting you to wade through all the terms of service and all the legalese and the privacy policy in search for the opt-out box that says, do not use my information for any purpose other than the intended primary purpose of the data collection. Nobody does that. You know, life is short. But it's not that people don't care about privacy. Concern for privacy is at an all-time high. So instead of making people do that, putting the onus on them, to find a way to protect their privacy. Privacy as the default is the exact opposite. It flips it on its head and it says, we give you privacy automatically. You don't have to ask for it. You don't have to search for it. This is such a game changer. And people love it, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. It gives them such trust. And right now there's such a trust deficit and nothing builds trust more than privacy as the default setting. And then embedded in design just makes it a permanent feature, if you will, Because it's not just a policy we created today and it's gone tomorrow. It's baked into the code, embedded into the design of your operations, so you can't forget about it or overlook it. It's an essential component of your operations. It's just a total win.
0: Yeah. And that that reminds me of a saying that uh, I didn't coin. Uh, uh, Steve Gibson did. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's a security guy. And he he coined this phrase called the tyranny of the default, which uh, is Uh. kind of the the inverse of that. It's kind of where we're at today. And that is, nobody checks these things. Nobody changes the defaults. And and these companies know that, right? So the defaults are almost always not in your benefit.
1: Exactly. That's why we want privacy to be the default. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Well, and then there's, and then that seems to me like the antithesis would be uh, what we call dark patterns. And that's, you know, where the product yeah. or the service is specifically designed to trick you into giving away your data and therefore your privacy. You know, for example, um, you know, they, they have these things, you know, the, the pop-up is for permissions. It's like, do you want to have a horrible experience or do you, you, know, you want to see ads you don't care about? And of course, well, I don't want to see ads I don't care about, but what they're doing is they're trying to get you to, you know, give away your privacy. So... Talk to us a little bit about the dark pattern thing, because that wasn't always there, at least not as I recall. When did that kind of emerge as a, uh, <laughs> as a thing that we see today?
1: I would say in the last decade. And, you know, it grows with AI and embedded technologies that are just growing everything by design in terms of surveillance that is um, embedded into centralized systems, centralized data sets where the Googles and Facebooks have like the honeypot of personal information in a central database and they can use it in ways that were never intended. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the huge problems with centralization. You, the customer, the individual, you lose control over your data. We're changing all that. We're going now in the direction of decentralization. If I can just mention that about a year and a half ago, Tim Berners-Lee, who was the creator of the World Wide Web, he went public and he said, I'm devastated at what I created in the web it's become this centralized honeypot that promotes tracking and surveillance of your activities. I'm walking away from it. I've created a decentralized model. His is called Solid. But the beauty of it was it paved it it the way for more and more companies going the decentralized route where control is returned to the data subject, the individual. And this is growing. So I have great hope.
0: Oh, good. Because I really don't. So hopefully, hopefully over the course of this interview, you'll, you'll cheer me up a little bit because I've gotten rather jaded about it.
1: Oh, Carrie, I am the eternal optimist. Because If you're not, then you're going to give up and you cannot give up.
0: Well, I don't give up. So at least I'm at least good. optimistic. That's that sense, though. I know it can be fixed. I just, anyway. Uh, so uh, one of the things I see you saying over and over, at least on Twitter is that privacy is not a zero sum game. said it's, it's a positive yes. sum game. What What do you mean
1: by that? Yes. And that's one of the foundational principles. What that means is zero-sum means either or win-lose. You can have security versus privacy, Uh, privacy versus business interest. It's always a versus one has to lose. And I can tell you, it's never privacy that wins over security, and nor am I suggesting that it should be. But I sure as heck am not going to let it lose out. Positive sum simply means you can have two positive gains at the same time, privacy and security, privacy and business interest. We have done this again and again and shown people, we've worked with like every major tech company you can think of, um, Microsoft, Intel, HP, Oracle, IBM, to show that, yes, you can take technology and make it work with privacy hand in hand. It doesn't have to be a win-lose. I always want it to be a win-win. And that's what attracts the interest of businesses. You know, businesses, I talked to a lot of CEOs and boards of directors and You know, they think I'm going to just stifle what they're doing and and I say it's the exact opposite. Give me 10 minutes. And I say privacy will enhance your reputation. It will enhance your offering because you're going to offer privacy and data utility privacy and whatever business interests you're doing. Let me show you how. Then they love it. It's not that they're opposed to privacy. They just don't want it to erode their business interests, which of course makes total sense. And so... It's this dated mentality of zero sum either or that we have to get rid of,
0: yeah, totally agreed, uh now you mentioned you touched on one of the ones that's probably the biggest trade off that that I think that uh you know people people think that they have to make, and that is this notion that you've gotta give up some privacy. In order to have more security and in particular law enforcement and intelligence agencies in the U.S. and the U.K. Yeah. and Australia uh, are saying in no uncertain terms that they cannot protect us if we encrypt our communications, for example. Um, oh, it's
1: nonsense. <laughs> Backdoors. Yeah, give me a backdoor. Uh, sorry, I, I cut you off. I didn't mean to do that. But it drives me crazy. If I may. That's exactly uh, what I was going to ask you. So please go ahead. It's <laughs> going back almost 20 years. Uh, the clipper chip. This was yep. the first attempt at a backdoor, and I think it's like 20 years ago. Yep. And we had a full year of debate all around the world, all around the globe. And at the end, everyone agreed, this is a bad idea. What it will do is it will erode all of our security online communications. We will have no security, no privacy, no nothing. And five years ago, 2015, same issue arose. Fifteen of the world's leading cryptographers, all the brilliant minds you can think of, they put out a report called keys under doormats Mm. that if you place a key under the doormat to enable your child to get gain entry into your home, if he or she loses their key, it will also enable the robbers and the thieves to gain entry into your home. That the minute you open another door, a back door for proper use by law enforcement, the bad guys are going to gain access to it in no time. And they demonstrated how this happens again and again, the most brilliant cryptographers of the world. I remember Susan Landau, this brilliant um, crypto professor back then in California. She spoke to the judiciary committee that was reviewing this in the U.S. And she said, you will be weakening all of our online activities. You will not strengthen anything in terms of security. You will weaken it and erode any trust that we have in the online world and the internet. She was just brilliant. So the point where everybody keeps making, and now we're having the discussion again, of course, is law enforcement, of course, wants access to everything, mm-hmm. but it's folly, first of all, to think that they're going to gain it in any meaningful way and it's not going to have repercussions. Let me give you an example. This is not the back door, but in the UK, in England, the facial recognition is huge mm-hmm. and they have more CCTV cameras than anybody else. Like, I think 4.2 million cameras in, mm-hmm. in Britain. So they... Engage in facial recognition matches all the time. There was a report a few months ago, the accuracy rate or lack thereof, 81% false positive. 81% of the time, it falsely identified a law-abiding citizen as the bad guy, the person of interest. Can you imagine? Try to clear your name. When I was privacy commissioner, a number of victims of identity theft came to me. And it was a nightmare. They were seeking my assistance in clearing their name. And it was just a nightmare for them. And I always used to say, look, the first thing you have to do is go to the police and file an occurrence report. Something to verify your claim that your identity has been stolen, that you can then go to the credit card companies who are saying you've racked up all these charges. And you're saying, no, no, that wasn't me. And it's very hard to clear your name. So 81%, and that is a conservative estimate. Just a few weeks ago, there was another estimate, 96%. So I'm using the more conservative (laughs) estimate. So the reason I'm bringing that up is, this stuff leads to a lot of inaccuracy and a lot of harm arises for law abiding citizens in the pursuit of the bad guys.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think I saw a similar thing. Uh, somebody did a study where they were they were taking some, I don't know, some most wanted posters or whatever and trying to match those against some of the uh, California state legislators and got some hits. But it wasn't them. <laughs> you know, it was <laughs> it just I got to kind of prove to See, them that they could be caught up in this Web, too.
1: It's crazy. And now you have wonderful companies. There's an Israeli company called DID. And what they do is they obfuscate facial recognition features yeah. so that if a, facial, if a camera picks it up, you would still be able to tell that it looks like Ann Kavukian, but facial recognition wouldn't be able to identify my, my facial features to be able to do a match.
0: Yeah, I saw that. That was really interesting. I, I, you know, because yeah. most of these algorithms do, are doing math based on like the distance between your eyes and the distance you know, where your nose and mouth are relative to the eyes and all these kind of things. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure what they're doing is they're just fuzzing that a little bit. Enough that a human yeah. won't, you know, look at it and say, that looks weird. But it, to the, where the computer would say, I don't know who that is. Yes,
1: yes. Agree. Totally agree.
0: So there's, a, there's another uh, bill in front of the uh, U.S. Congress right now called Earn It, or the Eliminating, Abusive, and Rapid oh. Neglect of, in, of Interactive Technology. So I can tell you're aware oh. of it. Um, so Jag. tell us about how that that is kind of this backdoor way of backdooring. It seems like it's kind of a it's sneaky that. way to undermine uh, our rights.
1: Absolutely. It's, and that's the thing. There's no transparency in these things. Mm. They're always presented as this wonderful tool. It's going to help law enforcement. We're going to earn your trust. It's nonsense. Again, it's sneaking in back doors, and they're not calling it back doors because nobody likes that, and they're just penetrating. They're trying to penetrate our communications online. I mean, everybody lives online now. There's so much of your life is revealed if online communications can be gained access to. So organizations like the Electronic Frontier Foundation and EPIC are mounting huge challenges against our net, and I suggest we all do the same.
0: Yes, indeed. Um, so now this one a little closer to home with the current situation. I, I saw this New York times article just published recently and the, I'll just read the title. The title says yeah. to track coronavirus, Israel moves to tap secret trove of cell phone data, oh. which first of all, they have a secret, oh my God. they had a secret yes, trove sure. of data that they didn't tell anybody about. So they were already collecting it. Yes. So they revealed that they had yes. it and saying that they're going to use that now to track the virus. And, it, and then apparently the U S is talking about doing similar things. Is this, oh. <laughs> I can see where you're going by your expressions, but.
1: Is this I, not I a, a way to use
0: this? this?
1: Go ahead. I have been tweeting about what President Netanyahu has been doing in Israel. As you aptly pointed out, first of all, that who knew they had the secret database of all the mobile communications and cell phone data? Who knew that? Mm-hmm. And now they're going to use it, of course, for the greater good to contain the COVID-19 virus. Who can object to that? I can object to that. <laughs> Here's why. And it's not that in, in times of of crisis like this with, with this huge pandemic, of course there will be times when the law enforcement will need to access people's information when otherwise they wouldn't be able to, but there's something called due process. If you have reason, your law enforcement or whoever, and you say, look, I think I've identified a group here. I believe they're problematic. We have to look in fine, go to a court, get a warrant. Once you have judicial authorization, that opens the door and enables you to, properly gain access to information that otherwise you would not be able to gain access to. And everyone understands that there's a pandemic. Everyone is scared. We need to secure the public and there need to be additional measures that are taken, which normally would never be taken. The judges will give you that kind of warrant. But the thing that that we also have to be mindful of is that when you issue these warrants and these agreements, there have to be deadlines. It can't be just be, we're going to access this data forever. There's got to be some timelines associated with it. And then at the end of the, the time period, you, you may have to issue another one. If not, forget about it. If yes, and the problem persists, then you get another warrant and that will extend the time period. But it can't be infinite that the law enforcement can collect whatever they want for where, for whatever period of time without a warrant, without any judicial authorization or due process
0: that's unquestionable. Yeah, and it's in the in terms of like US constitutional law it'd be it's kind of like the equivalent of free speech versus the, the ability to you know shout fire. I mean, there are limitations on yes. free speech and there's limitations yes. on these other things too. You have to get as long as you get a warrant, then you know some of these things can yes. be breached, but until you do, they can't. Exactly.
1: Can. That's right.
0: Right. Okay, so how do you how do you think we got where we are right now in terms of, you know, the ravenous data collection to feed this attention-based economy? Where where did we go wrong?
1: You know, there's such a, when the online world first started, I mean, everyone was intrigued. Um, the ease with which they can gain access to information and records and communicate so clearly with each other through social media, et cetera. I mean, it was just all very exciting and new. And And, and it's at those times when the evaluation that is needed in terms of protection of rights and liberties and freedoms, wanes, because people are just really excited by this. It's like, you know, just running out the door like the Wild West. We're obviously well past that time. And the machinery for surveillance, unfortunately, has grown so dramatically during that period that trying to reverse that now is exceedingly difficult. It's not impossible. I, I always lead with you don't give up. But it's taken some, for example, the Facebooks, the Facebook. Story, Facebook. Because of Cambridge Analytica, that was a wonderful um, slap in their face, if you will. <laughs> because, as you know, in the U.S., the FTC fined them five billion dollars—huge—and mm-hmm. they've imposed this requirement that there be an assessor who will continue to evaluate their activity, their behavior, for twenty years. I mean, that's huge. Facebook has never had to do that, and Google is now addressing some of these issues. They're, you know, getting rid of the cookies structure and. Things are slowly changing because they, they see that the public has never been as concerned about privacy as they have been in the last two years. All of the public opinion polls, Pew Research, etc., have come in at the 90 percentile consistently. 90 percent of those surveyed, very concerned about their privacy. 92 percent concerned about loss of control over their information. So it's shifting. The pattern is shifting in terms of wild attraction to technology to looking, beginning to look under the hood at what else is it doing that I don't know about. And that's a very positive development. Also, with the introduction of the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation Mm -hmm. in the European Union two years ago, that was huge. That raised the bar on privacy dramatically. It built in control over one's data like never before. And it added my privacy by design framework into the GDPR, which was huge. And privacy as the default, is also specifically in the law. So these factors have made privacy grow globally, dramatically, because most countries want to engage in business and trade with the EU. And if they have what's called essentially equivalent legislation, then they can do so freely. So countries all around the world, Brazil, Canada, everybody, they're trying to raise the bar. And privacy by design has now been translated into 40 languages. It's totally global.
0: Yes, indeed. Okay, to me there's like you know, when you were to try to influence the market and influence the way businesses uh conduct themselves, there's there's carrots and there's sticks. And GDPR is probably more along the stick thing and we're gonna, I'll talk about yeah. I wanna talk about that in a minute. But as far as yeah. you know, the carrot thing, it actually and somehow incentivizing these people to do it, it seems like there's the way our first of all, the, the the economics of the web today is that nobody wants to pay for anything. So these these you know these companies have got to make money somewhere, and so the way they've all decided to do that is through advertising and selling your data. And then at a, you know if I want to get really philosophical, you know, capitalism in general, especially at least in the U.S., when when these public companies are their fiduciary responsibility is to make as much money as possible for their shareholders. And, and the sure. way a lot of these companies have you know, decided that they can do that is, well, we've got, a, we're sitting on all this data. Why don't we monetize this data? So how do we, how do we fundamentally change the economics of the situation? Is there, is there a carrot way that we might be able to, uh, to, to guard some of our privacy?
1: See, the carrot is, is what I try to offer through privacy by design because Increasingly, those methods of monetization are coming back to bite the companies. People have had it with all the pop-up ads and advertising that are sent to them. They're walking away from it. So when I approach companies, I talk to their boards. I say, "Look, if you get certified for privacy by design, it'll say two things about you. It'll say one, you care deeply about your customers." and you're going to great lengths to protect their privacy, the highest privacy possible. In fact, we offer privacy by design certification now, which companies are clamoring for. Why? Because people care so much about their privacy. And if you show them you are going to great lengths to protect their privacy, it will not only retain the customers you have and preserve their loyalty, it will attract new customers and new opportunity. So companies that get certified for privacy by design, I say, look, don't stay quiet about it. Shout it from the, your rooftops. Shout it from your website. Tell your customers the lengths you're going to to protect their privacy and the respect you showed them for that brings in new opportunity all the time. Companies have told me this afterwards, that after they've been come certified and they've spread the word about it, all of a sudden they're getting new customers. The customers they have, existing ones, are bringing their friends and family in and spreading the word about This is all about preserving your reputation, your brand. And it will also help you avoid privacy infractions and data breaches. It's a multiple win. And when they see that, they clamor for it. We're seeing this increasingly. More and more companies are seeking to be certified with privacy by design. And it's for these reasons because it it, it gives them a competitive advantage over the other guys who don't do it. That's the messaging.
0: Well, I, I I hope you're right on that. I hope and I and I and I always tell um, the audience, you know, when they see these kind of products and services that that tout privacy, that they 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 give them money. I mean, show the market that you know that yeah. that there's a that there is a market for these things. But it seems to me like you know Google, Facebook, Twitter, uh, these guys seem like they're maybe too far gone. Like like they're already so addicted to that. And that's where we probably get to the stick end of this. Is where we start having to look at things like regulation.
1: Let me tell you a funny a funny story if I may first. Sure. Um, the CES conference in uh, Vegas in January, there was a panel, and on the panel was the chief privacy officer of Facebook, Mm -hmm. and they're talking about privacy and stuff, and she says, oh, we offer privacy by design, (laughs) and everyone like gags, and she Mm -hmm. says, we do, go look for it, and here's the thing, they do offer privacy by design at Facebook, but you got to find it and Mm -hmm. search for it, it's not obvious. Once you find it, you can lock down your Facebook information to three people or family and friends or whoever you decide. Unfortunately, that's the problem with that model. The Facebook model of privacy by design is it's hard to find and you have to go to great lengths to find it. Once you find it, you're fine. So we're trying to change that model to say drive this out and make it work for you because It shows your customers you're leading with privacy. Now, I'm not suggesting Facebook is anywhere there, but the point is more and more companies are beginning to make that shift and using privacy to their advantage to gain business. It's a business interest. Make it work for you. And that's why I do a lot of consulting now. That's why companies come to me to ask for my assistance and how do you do that. It's not hard.
0: Well, it seems like the two parts of – uh, the two key parts is the privacy by design is one thing, but then privacy by default is where is where yeah. Facebook's going wrong, right? They have the design there, yeah. they just but that's not by
1: default. <laughs> totally, we're working on it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so back to the question of regulation: is that it, given the companies like you know these mammoth yeah. companies that that are making huge yeah. amounts of money off of our data, is is regulation the only real way that we're going to you know put a stop to those companies doing what they're doing, like GDPR and CCPA and and some yeah. of these other laws?
1: Yes. Yes. There's no question. Regulation is very important. And with the GDPR, the penalties that can be issued four percent of your global revenues. Mm-hmm. Imagine four percent of Facebook or Google. Huge. So there's there's significant fines. Now, are they significant enough? You know, five billion being charged by the FTC to Facebook. You know, people say it's a drop in the bucket. <laughs> but still, for most people, five billion U.S. dollars is not insignificant. And these are the things we have to address. Regulation is clearly the stick. And, you know, when I was privacy commissioner, I had regulation very strong. I had what was called order-making power. I could order organizations that, after an investigation I found had breached the act, the law, uh, I could order them to take the corrective measures and they'd have to do it. But you know what? I rarely did that because I would much rather sit down with them reach an informal resolution that they participated in because the results I would get were far better because I would get more than the minimum I could get through regulatory compliance. So yes, sometimes the only thing you can do is use the regulation, but I always tried first to reach agreements that they could see would also benefit them as well as their customers and surpassed in fact, the regulatory requirements. So, I always say you need both. You need the carrot and the stick, but don't forget the carrot.
0: <laughs> so let, let, let's let say we could do all that. Let's say that we could come up with a nice balance of carrots and sticks. But just given the vast scope and complexity of modern digital life and the near-weekly data breaches, is it even possible to protect all this data? I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it, everything's got bugs somewhere. I mean, I'm a software engineer. I just, it's it's impossible yeah. to write perfect software. So even if with the best intentions... Uh, aren't we? Are we still basically screwed?
1: We're not screwed. Look at life. I mean, oh, people have great lives. Are there problems that arise from time to time? Are there illnesses? Are there, of course. But that doesn't mean you stop living because there are problems out there. And these days, there are so many great solutions coming up with decentralized models. You can have your data residing in a secure enclave in the cloud, and no one else can touch it unless you decide to disclose it to whoever. There are encryption methods that are unbelievable there's something called homomorphic encryption which is the data can be encrypted and remain encrypted in a database and whatever data analytics you need to do to the data you can do it on encrypted data you don't have to decrypt it and subject it to potential harm there's so much happening in this area all kinds of encryption both public key and other so i don't want you to give up on this where in fact i think starting a new decade of privacy, decentralization, and remarkable new technologies that are being developed. I'm working with a company developing something called MyPi, which is called My Personal Intelligence, where you are in total control of your data. It resides in a secure enclave, in a data set where you have total control, you have the encryption keys, no one can gain access to it unless you choose to. Um, you can share it with your circle of trust if you choose to, again, all positive consent. It's an amazing model. This is just the beginning. Do not give up hope.
0: <laughs> well, your uh, enthusiasm <laughs> is infectious. I, it's making me see the light. Good. So <laughs> one of the other things that it was covered in the CIPM exam and some of the other things that are probably part of your, uh, your basic philosophy in addition to this, is data minimization and, and, and retention limits. Yes. Talk to us a little bit about yes. what those mean and how that helps us uh, helps us in this regard.
1: The beauty of data minimization, it means you're de-identifying the data, um, de- depersonalizing it. So you're scrubbing the personal identifier's name, number, things of that nature, anything that can be linked in an identifiable way to you. You're getting rid of them. So in effect, you're anonymizing the data. So when you have this data minimization, you're golden. Because you still have very valuable data, which can be used for a variety of different purposes and data utility, but you don't have the harm associated with it in terms of privacy. The data harm associated with personal identification has been eliminated. It's a total win-win, and that's why companies are very attracted to it. Um, Data minimization will take you such a long way, and it will prevent you from a lot of the data breaches that you see happening on a daily basis.
0: Well then the retent- the retention model too is and, and GDPR calls oh, it out yeah. and the thing is is to only keep data for as long as you need it for its original purpose and then get rid of it. I mean yeah. data should be almost seen as a liability yeah. in this case because it's something it's this honeypot, it's a, it's this attract thing that's attracting yes. you know other people to get it. But if you don't have it, there's no there's no attraction.
1: You're absolutely right. The problem is most companies still don't want to get rid of the data, even after they've used it. So my advice to them is always you know, get rid of the data. No, we don't want to get rid of it. Fine. If you have data at rest that you're not using anymore, encrypt the data as strongly as possible. At the very least, if you have encrypted data sets, uh, it's not that hackers couldn't break the code possibly, but they won't bother. You're not, you're not a magnet anymore. It's too much work. They'll go and they'll find an easier magnet of un-de- unencrypted data. So at the very least, if you must retain the data, encrypt all data at rest, but better still get rid of it.
0: When people inevitably ask you what they should do today to protect their privacy? What advice do you give them?
1: A few things. I say stop using Chrome. If you're doing Mm -hmm. searches, use something like DuckDuckGo or Brave. These are wonderful Mm -hmm. tools because they will give you the search information you're seeking. But imagine if you're ill, you're seeking something about cancer or something. You know, very personal information. You don't want that accessible to anyone else. So I always tell people that. Um, the other thing I tell people, which very few people do, uh, don't use social media like Facebook, <laughs> etc. Uh, no one listens to me. Mm. And then I say, if you're going to, then make sure you find that privacy by this yeah. And at the very least, try to secure your data as best you can. Not going to great lengths. You know, encryption is hard, et cetera, But offer whatever you can in terms of any protections that are available to you. And also, do what I do, both online and in the physical stores. If you go into a store and you buy something, a lot of the times they'll ask you for your postal code or something. Mm. And I'll say, oh, uh, can you tell me how you protect that data and what kind of (laughs) privacy – and, of course, the clerk doesn't know, but the clerk goes and gets the manager. The minute the manager arrives and he or she sees I'm interested in privacy – They know all about it. Oh, we can put your information in this strong place. We'll secure the data. We'll encrypt it. We'll put firewalls around it. They know what to do. You just have to express the interest in having it done.
0: Well, you know, and some people, (laughs) people, the knee-jerk response is, well, just drop off the grid. Don't participate in modern society. But that that is really not an answer. No.
1: (laughs) No, of course not. You have to participate. And you can do both. You can have privacy and full access to all the tech you want in a secure manner.
0: Now, I don't know if you want to go with that in this route or not, but it, it would, are there any particular products <laughs> and services you might recommend over others like Android versus iOS or Mac versus PC or browsers I'm, or anything I'm like a,
1: that? I'm a, big, I'm a big Apple fan. I always have been. As you know, Steve Jobs from day one, and Tim Cook does it now, um, the data are encrypted. Oh, and you've got your mobile device, your Apple phone. You know, James Comey took Tim Cook to court, mm-hmm. took Apple to court years ago. Because they wouldn't, um, they had some bad guy's phone and it was encrypted, end to end encryption. And they went to Apple and said decrypt it for us, and they said we can't do that. We don't have code that does that. And he said, well, surely you can write the code. He said we don't do that. We <laughs> encrypt end to end, and they meant it, and they won. So I always, t- you know, a small story about Steve Jobs, who's just so amazing. He used to buy a new white Mercedes. Every six months, less a day, he would take the old one in and get another one. Exactly the same, make and model. Why would he do that, you're saying? Because in California at that time, you had six months after buying a new car to get a license plate. <laughs> he didn't want a license plate number. He didn't want to be trapped. <laughs> I love that story. Yep. Unfortunately, after he died, they, they changed the law.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Apple is
1: great. Yes, well,
0: okay. I, I'm a big fanboy too, but you know, it's nice to hear somebody in your position say the same yeah. thing. <laughs> um, you. So, you know how how can we, you know, as consumers, average consumers, evaluate the relative security and privacy of the products and services we use? I mean, there's just, I mean, by looking at the box, there's just there's just no way to tell. And until that, until there's some way to tell, you know, I don't know how the invisible hand of the yeah. market could favor one yeah. over the other. What do we? How do we You're deal right. with
1: that? Do do a little bit of research first. It's so easy to go online and do a search for whatever product or service you're looking for and do the search and just say, you know, put in privacy. What kind, of, what level of privacy? You'll find out very quickly. It's not hard to do. And usually with a lot of the products and services, you'll see very quickly which ones are plotted for privacy and which ones are not. So I always urge people, it'll just take you 10, 15 minutes. Just do a, a little bit of a search first. And buy trusted brands like Apple um, as I said, church search engines, DuckDuckGo, Brave. There are there are more and more products and services coming out that are leading on privacy. Just keep your eyes open.
0: So you know when I think back of in back in the day, always you know you would always look for the UL you know Underwater's Laboratory symbol on something to know that it was you know, some third party had, had tested this and said it's it's safe. Do we is there anything developing today for a third party? You know, certification of privacy or security on our consumer devices and products?
1: As I said, we do privacy by design certification for products and services. And um, our leading telco in Canada, TELUS, they have obtained multiple privacy by design certifications for various products and services that they offer. They lead with that. And they lead with trust. They know that privacy is needed to have trust embedded in your operations. So they lead with that. So take a look EFF, Epic—they put out a lot of information on this.
0: All right, so you know, maybe can I hope that someday when I pick up the, you know, pick up a box, you know, a router or something, that there might be some sort of a symbol or something on that box that will let me know without necessarily having to go do independent research that okay, someone else has looked into this and they think this is okay. Is that ever going to happen?
1: I'm hoping that'll happen in the next few years. So ISO is developing a privacy by design standard, and once that's out, that'll make a big difference, and you'll see that kind of standard on
0: labeled on products and services gotcha i, I can't wait um <laughs> so all right so broader question so in your opinion we've we've touched on a few of them um what do you feel are the most serious serious threats to our privacy today obviously facial recognition is one you can talk about that but what are the other what other things today are most you? what keeps you up at night
1: i'm just going to touch on facial recognition for a moment because it is Staggering in terms of the potential harms, such that many jurisdictions now in the U.S., leading in the U.S., have banned facial recognition. Um, San Diego, San Francisco, first one to ban facial recognition. Oakland, Michigan, uh, Maryland is looking at this now, and Texas, and other jurisdictions all around the world. This is huge. So, you know, I lead with that because it's, it's such a growing trend. Increasingly, the data that you you know, speak into your phone, into your iPhone, your, well, not your iPhone, not worry about the iPhone, but your text messages, your voice commands, et cetera. This can be a source of real harm. See, the way, as you know, cell phones operate, they, they ping, the signals ping off of cell phone towers, and that's how they you know, go where they're supposed to go. Increasingly, law enforcement agencies, this happened in Canada with the federal agency, the RCMP, they use something called an MC catcher, which impersonates a cell phone tower and can gain access to all the cell phone communications in a given area. They were outed by the CBC last year, and they said, well, look, we're looking for this bad guy. He was in this area, and we we're trying to find him. The CBC said, well, did you find him? They, said, no, no, we weren't successful. So what did you do with the hundreds of thousands of communications from law-abiding citizens in that area that you also captured? Did you delete that? Well, no, you know, it might come in handy at some point. I mean, it's appalling. And they didn't even have a warrant to do this. So increasingly, those kind of communications and texts, etc., you have to be very careful. There's just so much. Um, you have to be careful anything online which um, could capture your data.
0: So, what about things like you know? All, so much of what we do today, because it's on huge scale, is all algorithmic, and 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 there's all these now fancy AI and machine learning techniques that are combing through these vast yeah. quantities of data to, you know, in a lot of cases, uh, target us with ads, or maybe even manipulate us or judge us. Uh, you know, for you know, are we qualified for this loan? Uh, and and the sad fact is, a lot of these things, by design, are really kind of impenetrable. I mean, these. you you throw all this data at this algorithm and it spits out a result, but you really don't know how it it came up with that result. So talk to us a little bit about about that.
1: We have a lot of problems with AI in terms of algorithmic transparency and algorithmic bias. And actually, it's not even so much at the level of the algorithm. Algorithms are created by training data sets, the data sets that form and, and shape the algorithms. And a lot of the training data sets are biased. Uh, especially against people of color, especially women of color. So you have to be so careful in terms of at least looking under the hood of the AI in terms of what the algorithms were trained to do and what training databases were used to train the algorithms. Uh, we presently don't do that routinely, but it's beginning to grow and concern for algorithmic transparency is, is growing um, rapidly. And I'm very very pleased about that because so much, there was a court, a court case uh, last year, Supreme Court of Canada, where this um, indigenous uh, gentleman who was in prison was coming up for parole. He applied for parole and Correctional Services Canada used an algorithm to determine his likelihood of recidivism mm. and he was found to be highly likely to recidivate so they didn't give him parole. He got a very good lawyer and the lawyer accessed the algorithm that was used, and the training data set. And it showed that there were no indigenous characters, Métis, it was Métis, uh, in the training data set, that the training data set bore no reflection to him or his heritage. So Supreme Court of Canada actually reversed the decision. They said there's no fairness here because it doesn't apply to him. The, the, um, hmm. the, the group that you used in the training data set, bears no resemblance to this gentleman take it back. So they have to start again. And that I think you're going to see more and more of that, where that kind of digging will reveal the lack of fairness in many of these decisions associated with AI.
0: Okay, so let's as we wind up here, let's let's end on a positive note. So we've talked at length about the dystopia that we live in today. What is uh, what does utopia look like? What is (laughs) what is your vision for how things could be if we, you know, did all these right things? If we follow the regulations, we had the right carrots and sticks. What you know, what does that look like?
1: That's easy. Utopia is total control, personal control of your own personal information residing with the individual, the data subject. There's something called um, SSI, the self-sovereign initiative, and it's all about self-sovereignty, meaning you are the individual who makes the decisions associated with your information, to whom you wish to have it disclosed, how you want it used. It's, just a, it's a new movement, and it's just beginning to start, and I can see this growing where you will make the decisions, who gets what, and if you want to share information with companies, be my guest. You know, I say, look, privacy is not a religion. You want to give away your data, do so freely, as long as you make the decision to do that. And this is growing. Look it up, SSI, you're going to see this all over the place, and decentralization between those two forces we're going to have free societies. Remember, privacy forms the foundation of our freedom. You cannot have free and open societies without a solid foundation of privacy, which resides, it resides in personal control, residing with the data subject, self-sovereign
0: so what is then what is then the the call to action i always like to end on some sort of thing if my if the audience is properly fired up if they've you know if they realize that these things are what they want and they don't want what we have now what is the most effective way for an individual person uh, someone in the audience what would you tell them to help affect these changes as quickly as possible
1: always speak up and ask for privacy as i said i do this routinely i do it nicely i try to do it nicely when i go into stores um uh, and and online before I place an order, I say, what do you do with my information? Uh, I, I don't want to use for any other purpose. Uh, you tell me. Once I make my wish to have my privacy, you wouldn't believe how strongly it's reinforced. Mm-hmm. And companies say, oh, oh, sure, yeah, we, we'll, we'll just lock it up over here. You have to express your desire for privacy, and you will be rewarded in doing so. You will get the kind of feedback that you want. And just tell people not to stay quiet. Challenge procedures and practices you don't agree with go to another store if you don't like what they say you can do this and increasingly we're getting more and more privacy which forms the foundation of our freedom
0: well and thank you so much that was that was just a discussion i was hoping to have and you're the perfect <laughs> person to do it so keep doing all uh, that you're doing you've made such a, a major difference around the globe and uh so happy to have you on the program finally
1: my pleasure thank you very much for having me
0: So happy to have finally gotten Dr. Ann on the show. Been wanting to do that for a long time. She's been so, so influential and obviously so optimistic about the future, which says a lot, seeing as how that Privacy in, uh, by Design has been around for a really long time now. And, and obviously we've gone uh, quite astray from those principles, but hopefully we're coming back to that. I think as people finally wake up and realize what's going on, and unfortunately that's happened because there's been a lot of uh, news stories that have exposed things that have been going on because otherwise it's just not transparent. I think we're finally starting to get glimmers of what's going on. And then we'll realize that privacy by design is, is really the only way forward. So I promised you uh, I had a little teaser there. Uh, so it turns out, I was, as I was researching this, and I did not know this, actually, about her until I read it, uh, on Wikipedia, of all places. Her brother is Rafi, the beloved children's artist. My kids loved his songs growing up. And when I told them uh, that she was related to Rafi, they just couldn't believe it. And if for some reason you've been living under a rock and have not heard his stuff and you've got kids, you've got to check out Rafi. He's got some really great silly songs that the kids just love. Uh, A couple more things. We did mention the Earn It Act, which is some long, goofy name. I've talked about it in previous ones, but it really is a sneaky attempt to basically undermine uh, end-to-end encryption. And so if you would like to register your, your disdain for such things, go to the podcast website. I've got a link there to the EFFs page about this, but there are many other privacy groups that are uh, fighting back against this as well, like Epic and Fight for the Future. So take your pick, go check these out, learn a little bit more, and they've all got little ways for you to sign up and contact your representatives, all of them. If you, uh, through EFF, you enter your address and whatever, and they will they will have you automatically send a single letter to all your representatives. And if you're looking for some more reading material, some things to do, and you got a little extra time on your hands now that we're all self-quarantined, you might check out the book, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, you can get it on A-Press. I think A-Press actually has another sale going on right now, not just on the ebook, but on the paper book, too. So you might want to check that out. And I'm just starting to get work on the uh, the fourth edition, too. So if you'd like to give me some feedback, you can send me an email at feedback at firewallsdon'stopdragons.com. And if you go to Patreon and sign up there at the right level, I will I will be sending out periodic updates on how the book's coming and what I'm doing and give you maybe a chance to give even more direct feedback. And as always, I would really appreciate if you uh, would just take the time to go leave a nice review uh, for the podcast or the book on iTunes or Amazon, respectively. Those are where most people get this stuff. It really does help. So uh, if you're enjoying the content, take a few minutes if you don't mind and go do that. And, of course, spread the word to others. All right, hope everybody is staying home, and I hope everybody's staying healthy. Keep doing it, we will get through this. And as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.